Thank you for the scripture reading tonight, and thank you for being here. We're grateful that you've chosen to be back tonight. We're always thankful for another opportunity to be together on Sunday. Very thankful for the opportunity that we have to worship God in this great country. We are very thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy, and prayerfully we will continue to enjoy these freedoms for many, many years to come. Tonight we're looking at Acts chapter 2, and we're going to pick up with the memory verses that we've been looking at from week to week, and tonight, Acts 2, verse 47. In our study tonight, as we look at this verse, the theme of our study, the saved are in the church. And no doubt that's obvious. By listening to what Luke recorded many, many years ago, he said, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I want to encourage you this week, Make it a point to study and to memorize the memory verses and try to the best of your ability to catalog them and keep them in your mind. I said this morning that if you don't use them, you'll, you'll lose them. And so what you want to do is try to look at them several times in the day or throughout the week, rehearse them in your mind, and uh, use the cards that have been provided. Use them like flashcards. And at the end of the year, you're going to be amazed at how much Bible you have locked in your memory. And the goal is to take these verses, embed them in our lives, so that when people ask us what we believe, we can give a biblical response. And we want, we want to be able to talk to people about what the Bible has to say. And so in order to do that, we've got to know the book, don't we? And so tonight we think about the saved and the fact that the saved are in the church I want to begin by calling attention again to Acts chapter 2, and I want us to begin our study tonight in verse 42. And I want to talk about, first and foremost, the association of the early church. When you go back and look at the early church, it is evident that many, many people had the opportunity on Pentecost Day to hear the gospel. They heard the gospel, they heard Peter and the other apostles preach Christ and Him crucified. Great emphasis was placed on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the resurrection, as we have said, is the hub in the Christian religion because everything basically stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. And so in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, as we look at this verse, the first thing that I want to call your attention to has to do with their faithfulness to the Lord. Now, in verse 42, the Bible says, they, that is, the early church, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. As we think about their association in the Lord and the fact that these people were faithful to the Lord, think about it like this. They began their Christian life by being converted through the Word of God, didn't they? Look at verse, 40, verse 41. Peter, of course, has preached the resurrected Christ. In verse 38, he said, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God will call. I think here Peter is talking about the gospel being entrusted to the Jews, 
to their descendants, and then to the Gentiles. The gospel was intended for all people. In verse 40, the Bible says, with many other words, he testified and exhorted, saying, be saved from this crooked or perverse generation. Now look at verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to the Lord. So they were converted to God through the proclamation of divine truth, weren't they? God's word, you can't separate salvation from the scriptures. Jesus said in John chapter 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, Peter said, seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. He said, see that you love one another fervently. Then he went on to say, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but by incorruptible, by the Word of God which lives and abides forever. And so you think about the power of God's Word. They were convicted, as we pointed out, as a result of their conviction of sin, they turned through repentance, obeyed the gospel, and thus became New Testament Christians. And so in verse 47, when the Bible says, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved, those who were converted to Christ, they became members of the church of Christ, that is, the church that belonged to Christ. I said a moment ago that the saved are in the church. Every person who is in the body of Christ is among the saved, aren't they? They are among the redeemed, the cleansed. And so in Ephesians 5, 23, Paul said, speaking of Christ, He is the Savior of the body. That is, Jesus is the one who will ultimately save the body through His, through His precious blood. So they were converted to the Lord through the Word. But now note, if you would, their commitment to the Lord and His Word. Look again at verse 42. The Bible says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now you remember Jesus had promised the apostles in the long ago. He said in John 16, verse 12, I have many things to say to you, but you're not able to bear them now. However, He said, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. The apostles were endowed with the baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit. And they, that is, the apostles' doctrine, that is, the doctrine that was revealed by the Holy Spirit, was intended to govern the lives of God's children. The early church, they were committed to this Word. Now, there are a lot of people in the world today, for whatever reason, will sometimes casually dismiss the importance of doctrine. Well, doctrine is imperative. You think about what John said in 2 John 9. He wrote, Whoever goes onward and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. Those, however, who abide in the doctrine of Christ, he said they have both the Father and the Son. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul said to Timothy, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, he said, for in so doing you'll save both yourself and them that hear you. So the early church, they adhered to the doctrine that had been delivered to the apostles. And so they were faithful to the Lord. But not only do we read about their faithfulness to the Lord, but also consider their fellowship in the Lord. Luke said in verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. 
The early church, first and foremost, they enjoyed fellowship with the Lord, fellowship with Christ, didn't they? Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible tells us, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the saints in Corinth, said, God is faithful who has called us into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We enjoy a very unique relationship with the Lord, don't we? And the assurance is that as long as we abide in His Word, then we are identified as His disciples, aren't we? We enjoy, we maintain that fellowship. For example, in 1 John chapter 1, John said, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But he said, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin. So we have fellowship with God, with God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 1, John said the things that he had written were for the purpose that they might enjoy fellowship. Now, not only did the early church enjoy fellowship with Christ, they enjoyed fellowship with the church, that is, with other members of the body of Christ. Listen again to what Luke said. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship. If you want a good definition of fellowship, look at verse 44. In verse 44, the Bible says, All who believed were together. Joint participation. Togetherness a sense of communion. When Peter wrote, many years later, when he wrote his short epistle, really his second epistle, he wrote to people who were of like precious faith. And so we have fellowship, not just with the Lord, but with the Lord's church, don't we? It is a very special relationship. It's a kindred relationship. And I would submit to you that when you think about the relationship that we have in the church, many times... Our spiritual ties supersede our physical or biological ties, don't they? Sometimes you feel closer to a brother or sister in Christ than you do your own family members. Now, there's a second thing I want you to see in our study. First, we talk about the association of the early church. But secondly, the activities of the early church. Look, when you begin to read the book of Acts, you're reading a book of action. And the early church from... The get-go was on the go, weren't they? I mean, these people were on fire for the Lord. And they were doing everything that they, that they could to exalt the name of Christ, to lead others to Christ, and to glorify His name. So I want you to look again at verse 42. First, think with me, if you would, about their adoration of the Lord. Luke said they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and of prayers. I believe that when Luke here speaks of the breaking of bread, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was central to the life of the early church. Do you remember when Jesus instituted the memorial feast that we partake of every first day of the week? He instituted that memorial feast to remind us of His sacrifice on Calvary. The body that was given in our stead. The blood that was shed 
for us. Now, in Acts 2, verse 42, when I think about their adoration of the Lord, I'm reminded of the fact that their worship was God-centered. Their aim in worship was God, wasn't it? They recognized that God was worthy of their worship. And so, you think about, for example, the Lord's Supper, as I mentioned a moment ago. Every first day of the week, the early church met together during that period of worship. And they did, as we do every first day of the week, every Lord's Day, they partook of that bread. They partook of that cup. And it brought to memory the precious death of Jesus on Calvary for our sins. Didn't Peter say many years ago, speaking of Christ, that He has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust? Peter said that Jesus bore our sins in His body on the cross. Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, as they did, we're reminded of that body, that crucified body on Calvary. And then as we partake of the cup, which symbolizes His shed blood for the remission of sins, our minds go back to the cross, and we reflect upon the fact that without the shed blood of Jesus, we would be lost. And so, you think about the aim of worship and then the acts of worship. The Lord's Supper was just one of five acts of worship the early church engaged in every first day of the week. Luke here mentions their prayers. Read the book of Acts this week if you have time. And note the emphasis by the early church on prayer. Not just in corporate worship, but in their spiritual lives, individually speaking. But they prayed to God regularly. They lifted up, as Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, holy hands unto God. And by the way, let me ask this question. When we talk to people about the acts of worship and the aim of worship, if somebody were to ask you, try to pin you down about the various acts of worship, could you tell them what you do is in line with the Bible. We ought to be able to tell people what we believe and why we believe it. One of the reasons why we're emphasizing these key verses in Scripture. We're going to look at the various elements of worship over the course of this next year. But worship was vital to the early church. And I really think that many times we rob ourselves of spiritual strength when we fail to understand how important worship is in the context of Christianity. It builds us up. It edifies us, as the Hebrew writer said. We enjoy teaching. We teach one another in our song service. We listen to the Word of God as it's being taught. We corporately pray together. We give of our means to further the work of the church. We engage in these acts to glorify God, don't we? And so, first, their adoration. But then secondly, their glorification of the Lord. Now, I mentioned a moment ago their fellowship. Their fellowship in Christ and their fellowship in the church of Christ. I want you to see something in Acts chapter 2. The early church enjoyed a very unique bond 
Now, I mentioned a moment ago the tie that binds us together and how sometimes in Christ we feel closer to our brothers and sisters than we do to our own biological family members. That's true sometimes because you develop a very close relationship with people that you worship with and work with and labor for a common cause. But listen to what Luke said again in verse 44. All who, all who believed were together. Look at verse 46. Continually, continuing daily in one accord in the temple. And that, little, that little statement there, continuing daily with one accord. Another great definition of fellowship. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. I think if we could somehow go back in time and identify with the early church, one of the, thing, one of the things that would stand out to us is the cohesiveness, the closeness that they felt with one another. I think we would be amazed at how much time they spent together as members of the body of Christ. Turn over to chapter 4 very quickly. Look at chapter 4, verse 32. Luke said, The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. There was unity, wasn't there? They were united in their beliefs. And they were united in their bond in Christ. And so, what a great example this sets for the church today. But then note also, if you would, in Acts chapter 2, their unselfish benevolence. Let me tell you what, these people, they genuinely cared about others. They genuinely cared about other people in the church. They were concerned about those who were outside the scope of Christianity. So look again at verse 44. All who believed were together, had all things in common. Now note if you would verse 45. And sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. Now turn over again to chapter 4, verse 32. Listen again to what Luke said, the continuation. Luke said, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart, one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But Luke said, they had all things in common. How many times have you heard it said, people don't care how much you know until they know, until they know how much you care? You believe that? I believe it. You know, we can dazzle people with how much Bible knowledge we have. But look, the bottom line is people have, they have to believe that we are genuinely interested in their soul, in their plight on planet Earth, that we care about them. And when you go back and look at the early church, those people genuinely cared about one another. They loved one another. I mentioned a moment ago, that unique bond that they enjoyed in Christ. Listen, th this wasn't by accident. Jesus had cultivated that atmosphere, hadn't He? He had cultivated an atmosphere of love and unity. You remember John chapter 13? 
By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Do you remember, for example, in John 17, in the shadow of the cross, Jesus said, Neither for these alone do I pray, but for all them that will believe on me through their word, that is, through the apostles' word, that they might be what? That they might be one. This sense of unity. This unity, look, it was apparent in the early church. They were cohesive when it came to a body of believers. And so Jesus had, Jesus had laid a foundation. And so you think about their love for one another, that unique bond, and then you add to that, not just that unique bond, but their unselfish benevolence. Do you remember what Luke said in the book of Acts over in chapter 10 about Jesus? that He went about doing good. And do you remember in Acts chapter 20 when it was said of Jesus that He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So when you look at the, benevolent, the benevolence of the early church, where did they learn that? They learned it from the Lord, didn't they? And so if we want to be what we are supposed to be in the community, in the city, uh, among others that we interact with on a, on a regular basis, they've got to see that unique bond and they've got to sense our unselfish benevolence. We've got to be caring people, don't we? Listen to Paul in Galatians chapter 6. Paul said, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially them which are the household of faith. Paul would say in Galatians chapter 2 that they were encouraged to remember the, remember the poor. He said, the very thing which I do. So they were interested in the lives of people. James chapter 1. James is talking about practical Christianity in the first century. And he said, let me show you how Christianity operates. He said, here's what you do. You aid orphans and widows. You come to their rescue. You give them what they need. You assist them financially. You assist them emotionally. You encourage them. And so when I look at the early church, I see a tight-knit group of people who were active for the cause of Christ. In our Bible study this morning, we talked about how we have been saved to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you go back and look at the early church, the thing that stands out is these guys were on the move, weren't they? They were busy. They were active. Now they were encouraged to, to continue being busy in the kingdom. But the early church was growing by leaps and bounds because of their attitude and their actions. There's a third thing I want to share with you in our study today. It has to do with the additions to the early church. Why do you think the early church grew by leaps and bounds in the first century. Can you put your finger on why the church in the first century grew so rapidly? Let me give you a couple of reasons why I believe the church grew so rapidly nearly 2,000 years ago. I think, number one, it had something to do with their passion 
for the Lord. I'm convinced that when you go back and you look at the apostles and the disciples of Christ as a whole, these people were passionate about the Lord that they served. They genuinely believed in Him. They believed in His goodness, His kindness, His mercy, His love, His grace. And because of what the Lord had done for them, let me tell you what, they were motivated. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I really appreciate what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because I think in many respects it gets to the heart of the matter with regard to the attitude that was so prevalent in the early church. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. Paul said, For the love of Christ constrains us, because we judge thus, that if one died for, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. Now listen to what he said. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Did you note that Paul included himself among those for whom Christ had died? And Paul said the love of Christ constrains us. Paul and the apostles, they understood the love that God had for them. But they also understood that they were to reciprocate that love. What about 1 John 4, verse 19? We love Him because He first loved us. So their passion for the Lord. Look at Acts chapter 4 with me for a moment. Their passion for the Lord developed over time. How long did they spend learning from Jesus, sitting at His feet, day in and day out? What, some three, three and a half years? And you remember in Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John were called before the Sanhedrin council. They had healed a man at the gate of the temple, a lame man. The council interrogated them. They wanted to know by what name, by what power have you done this great deed? And they acknowledged that they had done it by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, verse 10. In verse 12, they said, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now look at verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. Now, listen to what Luke said. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. They had spent enough time with the Lord that they were convicted that Jesus was who He claimed to be, the divine Son of God. And not only were they convicted, but they were consecrated to His cause. Over a period of about three years, their love for the Lord had grown, hadn't it? So they had tremendous passion for the Lord. So I think about their passion for the Lord, and then secondly, their proclamation of the Lord. Look, when you read the book of Acts, one of the things that stands out, these folks were telling other people about Jesus on a regular basis, weren't they? Let me just share with you two, a couple of examples. 
since we're in chapter 4, Peter and John, they're before the Sanhedrin council. The council said in verse 17, so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. From now on they speak no more in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak nor teach in the name of Jesus. And listen to what these guys said. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. That's conviction, isn't it? That's consecration. Drop down, look at verse 31. They prayed for boldness, that God would give them boldness to proclaim His Word. Verse 31, the Bible says that after they had prayed, they spoke the Word of God with boldness. They had a burning message in their heart, and they wanted to share it with anybody and everybody. Look at chapter 5. In chapter 5, again, the council, the high priest, listen to what he said, verse 28. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But listen to what Peter and the other apostles said. We ought to obey God rather than men. Pointed out that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. He indicted them for murdering the Son of God, verse 30. In verse 31, he said, God has exalted him to his right hand. Now drop down, look at verse 40. Now, I mentioned a moment ago their conviction and their consecration to God. Their passion for the Lord and their desire to proclaim the Lord. So listen to what Luke said about them. Verse 40. When they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now let's just imagine that we were among that group of people. Let's, just ima- let's put ourselves in the shoes of the apostles. We've been beaten. We have been commanded by the Sanhedrin council to not preach or teach in the name of Jesus. How would we react? How would you react? You know, we live in a day and time, Christianity has become in many quarters in this country the whipping post of the media, Hollywood. I mean, there are a lot of people that are antagonistic to the teaching of Christ, to the name of God, to the Word of God. Thankfully, as we as we so well know right now, we live under the banner of freedom. We enjoy freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of religion, and for those things we ought to be extremely grateful to God. But now note, if you would, the text. They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Can you imagine that? They rejoiced that they had been granted the privilege of suffering for the name of Christ. Many years later, the Apostle Paul would write to the church at Philippi. And he said, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life, or by death. Listen, 
That's conviction. That's consecration. We need what they had. And then look at verse 42. And daily in the temple, that's publicly. And in every house, that's privately. They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I said a minute ago, the early church, they were sitting on the get-go and they were going. I mean, these guys were all about sharing the gospel of Christ, weren't they? Turn over, if you would, to Acts chapter 8. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 4. The early church is being persecuted. And the Bible tells us the disciples were scattered with the exception of the apostles. Those who were scattered went everywhere. And what were they doing? Preaching the Word. And then we read about Philip. Philip goes down to the city of Samaria. And do you know what he's doing? Preaching the Word. Why? Why were they preaching and teaching? Because of their passion for the Lord? Yes. Because they understood that the message that they proclaimed was a saving message. Absolutely. So you look back and you think about the early church, the components they had. They were courageous. They were convicted. And they were consecrated. Now I want you to see something else in our lesson text. Think with me, if you would, for just a moment about the consequence of the evangelism of the early church. What was the consequence of their preaching and teaching the gospel? Well, let's just pick up again in Acts chapter 2. Peter and the other apostles preached the gospel. Those who gladly received His word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Look at verse 47. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Turn, if you would, as we think about the growth of the early church, turn over to chapter 4. And look, if you would, in verse 2, the Bible says that the people were greatly disturbed because they taught the people, preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid hands on them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. As we noted a moment ago, they were interrogated by the Sanhedrin council. But look at verse 4. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So the church is off and running, isn't it? You've got some 5,000 men that make up the early church. Then look at chapter 5, verse 14. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Look at chapter, look at chapter 6 in verse 7. The Word of God spread. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Acts chapter 8. I mentioned a moment ago, Philip going down to the city of Samaria. And the Bible tells us in verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Now I mentioned a moment ago, as a result of persecution, the early church was scattered. Turn over to chapter 11. 
In chapter 11, verse 19, the Bible says, Those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So what do you have? Rapid growth in the early church, don't you? I mean, the church was growing by leaps and bounds on a daily basis, wasn't it? So I think about the growth of the church and the glorification by the church. When all this was going on in the first century, who was being glorified? God was, wasn't He? Now, again, in closing, the early church was on the move. They were active. They were vibrant. They were passionate. They loved the Lord and they wanted to share the Lord. As a result of their work, the church was growing. Now I want to ask you this question. If we have the same level of intensity by way of passion, conviction, consecration, and we share the Word as they shared the Word, will the church grow today as it did then? Didn't Isaiah write in Isaiah chapter 55 that God's Word would not return to him void? You think about how you can be an influence for others. You can be an influence in the lives of other people. It might be that we work as a team sharing the Gospel with people. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look, I planted a pile of water, God gave the increase. When we do what we're supposed to do, ultimately, who is glorified? God is. Didn't Jesus say, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven? Didn't Paul write in Ephesians 3 verse 21, unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages? When we as members of the body of Christ do what they did in the first century, ultimately God is glorified. Souls are saved. And that's what we're, that's what we're in the business to do. Share the message and watch the church grow and abound. Tonight I want to ask you a question. Are you among the saved? Have you done what they did on Pentecost Day? Now we read a moment ago in Acts chapter 2, in verse 42, the Bible says the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. God is still in the business of adding people to the church. If you're here tonight and you have not obeyed the gospel, why not do that this evening? Why not come to Jesus in simple trusting faith, believing that He is the Son of God, repenting of your sins, confessing His name before others, being buried with Him in baptism so that you can enjoy forgiveness. The stain of sin, gone. The burden of sin, gone. To bear those sins, no more. It's a beautiful thought. And listen, to be numbered among the saved? I mean, you talk about an elite group of people. The saved are the elite of the elite, aren't they? I mean, let me tell you what, the greatest institution on earth today is the church. 
and God's people are in the church and we want to go to heaven. And one day, the Lord Jesus is coming again. When He comes, we'll be ushered before Him in the judgment. We'll give an account of the deeds done in the body according to what we've done, whether good or bad. To those who are on the right hand, these words will be spoken by the Lord. Come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Are you among the saved tonight? If you're not faithful to Christ and you're not among the saved as we speak, why not come back? Why not let us pray with you and for you and God will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing.